Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach at the Naval Institute. Joining me is my usual co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. So we'd like our audience to take note of the new theme music, which is pretty space age, and uh, it was uh, created for us by... Commander Chris Nelson. Chris Nelson is a member of the Naval Institute, also a Naval Intelligence Officer, so there's a little theme there. Uh, and Chris just left uh, U.S. Pacific Fleet Headquarters, headed to the Office of Naval Intelligence in Washington. And uh, Chris uh, you know, brought the, the podcast game up a little bit for us by giving us some ideas on music, and he gave us some recommendations, and, and we picked one of his, and, and so we've got new theme mu- music this yeah. week, which is no, great. I love it. Yeah. It's, it's very electronic and future thinking and yeah. appropriate, uh, so thanks, Chris, for that, and so if our regular listeners are wondering why the music changed, uh, that's because why. that's why. That's the backstory. That's right. Um, I wanted to touch, before we move to our guest this week, I wanted to touch on a couple of uh, essay contests that we've got. We just closed out the uh, the deadline for the Naval Intelligence Essay Contest uh, was the uh, last Friday, the 17th of uh, August. The Cyber Essay Contest uh, comes due on August 31st. So that's a big one. We have a, a, a Wood Foundation Naval History Contest coming due at the end of the month. Uh, and then we are... Uh, We have coming up this fall uh, the first ever Midshipman and Cadet Essay Contest, which we are going to have as a deadline the 31st of October. Uh, And Admiral Daly, our our CEO, is going to push out an announcement, an email to the superintendent of the Naval Academy, the head of the the, um, uh, Coast Guard Academy, uh, NROTC. Ward, I think you'll reach out to some of the... uh, uh, professors in naval science and make sure that they know about that at the ROTC units around the country, OCS uh, up at Newport, etc. Uh, so that Midshipman and Cadet Essay Contest sponsored by GDIT. We thank them for that. Uh, first time ever, and we've, it's open to Coast Guard, Naval Academy, ROTC, OCS, anybody who is in a, a commissioning source. Uh, including Kings Point, the Merchant Marine Academy. Uh, so if you're coming into the sea services to be an officer and you're in a, a, a commissioning program, you are um, part of the audience that we want to write for that, and the, uh, the the topics are wide open. So pick it. Leadership, pick a history topic, pick a warfare specialty, pick navigation, seamanship, whatever you want to write about, uh, write about it. And uh, I think the Word limit is 2,500 words, and the due date will be the end of uh, October, uh, and the first prize will be $5,000. So that's not chicken feed. So, uh, and you'll get you'll get published in proceedings, which Fantastic. is fantastic. So, Although you could probably buy a lot of chicken feed with $5,000. You could. I have no idea how much chicken feed goes for, <laughs> um, but I'm sure it's not cheap. Uh, so speaking of chicken feed, here's the worst segue ever. <laughs> As I was traveling down Route 17. <laughs> Yesterday, behind some chicken trucks on their way to Purdue, there on the eastern shore, I was returning from the uh, Marine Corps Combat Correspondents Association conference, where uh, I was able to be on a panel, uh, and I thank uh, retired uh, Lieutenant Colonel Keith Oliver uh, for the invite there. But while I was speaking, in the audience was uh, a pretty well-known guy to military circles, Dale Dye, who's uh, an actor who's been in movies like Platoon and uh, other famous movies. But he's an active member of the Naval Institute and very much engaged in the forum. It was really cool to see. Very 
acutely aware of the things we've been doing lately. But he complimented us, and I was I, I thanked him for pointing this out and for noticing on how much enlisted facing contributions we've had in recent years. And I know Bill, you've been a big part of that initiative and those that outreach. Yes, that is deliberate. Um, so if you're watching the podcast on Facebook Live or you're listening to us uh, via whatever means, iTunes or SoundCloud, uh, and you're a, an enlisted service member, um, yes, it is an open door that you're pushing against if you want to contribute to the independent forum that is the Naval Institute, specifically if you want to contribute to Proceedings Magazine or Naval History Magazine. Yeah, and a point to all of our particularly uh, junior uh, authors, whether enlisted or junior officers or ROTC, midshipmen, cadets. Uh, I tell this to everybody when I get a chance one-on-one to talk to prospective authors. Uh, the point is that you know if you're an admiral or a general, what you submit to proceedings has got to be pretty good for us to publish it because we consider that you know admirals and generals have staffs and they have you know committees and they've got people who can ghostwrite for them and uh, you know, and, and that their stuff tends to be very good. Uh, but if you are a, a young author writing for your first time and thinking about something about the profession and you want to write for proceedings or for our blog, we're looking for the ideas. We have an army, not an army, we have four or five editors. Well, a Navy. Yeah, we have... We have a Marine Corps. We have a group. We have a, <laughs> we have a squad of editors, full-time editors, on the proceedings and naval history staff. Uh, and our job is to polish, uh, you know, the ideas of people in the profession, give them voice. And so it doesn't have to be beautifully written. Don't worry about your spelling. Don't worry about split infinitives. Uh, you know, if you've got a vo- uh, an idea about how to do something better, uh, how to be a better gunner's mate, how to how to uh, rig a position, how to use a sextant, how to lead young sailors, how to... Um, you know, support military families, so whatever, what, the, whatever topic the topic is, is, how to improve procurement chains, yep. how to whatever it is, fix eye level maintenance, I mean, yeah. whatever. If you're a first time author, we flag you as a first time author and we are looking for the ideas and not for beautiful prose. So yeah. uh, that's what we do. That's what we love to do. So, um, uh, so don't let the fact you're quote unquote not a writer be an impediment exactly. to entering the independent forum. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so now we'll go try to segue from you don't have to be a great writer to talking to somebody who is clearly a great writer. So today we are interviewing on the podcast uh, the author of a new book that the Naval Institute Press has just published. It is called Learning War, the Evolution of Fighting Doctrine in the U.S. Navy, 1898 to 1945. And the author's name is Trent Hone. And Trent is on the phone today from Arlington, Virginia. So Trent, uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And I just have to say I really appreciate what you were just saying about trying to gather and provide an effective forum for ideas uh, because I think that one of the things that my research has shown and that I try to draw out in the book is the importance of creating an environment where it's okay to come up with new and innovative ideas. Um, and I'm happy to see the, the, the part that the Naval Institute is playing in that even today. Certainly, it was doing it over 100 years ago, and it's, it's nice that that thread has continued. Well, thank you. That's you know, that's great to hear. And I, we, Ward and I were talking before the podcast. We both read through and scanned your book and skimmed some chapters, read others that we couldn't put down. Uh, and we both plan to go back and read the whole thing cover to cover. Um, but sprinkled throughout here are some nice mentions of the Naval Institute of Proceedings of the Insurgency, 
that this group of organ, you know, group of officers started uh, when they started the Naval Institute in in the 1870s because they weren't happy with the direction that the Navy was going and the sort of uh, organizational stasis it was in at that time. So um, let me let me just kind of provide a little bit of a, a lead in to your book, and then we'll we'll go where the conversation takes us. It's such a great book. Uh, so you start off your preface is how did the Navy transform? And this gets you know right now the Navy is talking about and CNO Richardson talking about how how to be a learning organization, right? How to how to speed up the the process of learning within the organization. And so you've looked back at a period of you know 45, 50 years in the Navy's history where it was one, where it was an incredibly fast learning and fast moving organization with technology and leadership and tactics and strategy and thinking about how to professionalize the officer corps and pick the right people to lead uh, in, through two world wars. Uh, so you start off with this, um, the, the preface that, uh, you know, the, the folklore in the Navy, and I've heard this throughout my career, is that on September, on December 7th, 1941, the surprise attack by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor sank the, the battle line, right? Sank most of the battles, battleships in the Navy. And that uh, event caused the Navy to change overnight, that that was the, uh, the catalyzing event that suddenly the Navy had to change. And, and you know, you say, hey, this is a, a traditional answer to this question of how did the Navy, that this shock of Pearl Harbor forced the Navy out of its stodgy conservative, conservatism. But you also say, state, it is also incorrect. Uh, and that the, this learning environment, that this organizational change that, that allowed the Navy to change so quickly and adapt so quickly in World War II was underway for quite some time, starting in the in the 1870s. So, so walk us through a little bit about this. You know, the start of your book, uh, why you decided to write this book, and then take us kind of from there, from that preface. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, the book. It's very interesting that you bring up Pearl Harbor. That is, that is certainly a story that that we have been told whether we're you know looking back at history or we're part of the navy right the attack triggers uh, a fundamental change in how the navy approaches war the battle fleet is sunk okay now we have to transition to carriers and one of the things that prompted me to start the research that led to this book and this was close to 20 years ago now was to try to understand how the Navy might have approached a large fleet battle in the Central Pacific if Pearl Harbor hadn't have happened, right? So suppose the Japanese didn't attack the battle fleet, suppose the battleships weren't sunk, what would Admiral Kimmel or his successor have done? How would they have attempted to fight the Japanese? And I pulled on that thread about as, you know, and I kept exposing new uh, ideas and different ways of looking at how the Navy was approaching tactical doctrine and how to think about combat that hadn't been exposed before, whether that was at the fleet level or if that was for night combat and other things. And I thought it was important to begin to tell that story and to illustrate all the effective work that was going on, not just to get better, but the structures that had been introduced that allowed the Navy to identify 
and then harness and exploit new ideas with regards to technology, tactics, doctrine, and, and the like. So that's, that's where the book comes from. So, so now talk, uh, talk to us a little bit about what you found out as you pulled those strings and, and looked back at, you know, how did the Navy transition? One of the things that you start off with is this idea that the Navy in the, in the late 1800s uh, was a tradition-based organization. And you say that, you know, seniority was based on time in service, that, you know, you didn't get promoted because you were great. You got promoted because you were around the longest. And then, Well, I guess you actually... I, one of the the works was called "Waiting for a Dead Man's Shoes," which is sort of a morbid way to think about. You know, the only way to move up was if somebody else passed away. <clears throat> you know, we don't think about this in terms of career path. Um, so, like Bill was saying, talk to us a little bit about some of the the things that we assume are just natural, um, you know, parts of the military, but in the late. 19th century and the 20th century, they were absolutely not formalized or established. Most uh, listeners probably don't appreciate the fact that in the late 19th century, promotion in the Navy was purely by seniority, right? So you would advance based on, you know, your number and where you are in line, and you'd keep track of the people in front of you and, and behind you. And, you know, as the officers moved through the ranks, it becomes much more difficult to spend any effective time in in the higher ranks, you know, because there's a there's a, a number of officers. There was a glut of them from the Civil War, and so by the time they reach mandatory retirement age, they've they've accelerated to the higher ranks and gained very little experience at at commanding a fleet or doing the things necessary to manage a large organization. And a good number of individuals recognize the problem with this prompted by changes that were going on in the United States at the time, right? There are growing professional or knowledge of the importance of professional organizations. There are professional societies for lawyers, for doctors, and they start developing uh, constraints necessary to have uh, an ethos and an understanding of what it takes to be a professional. Naval officers wanted to do the same thing, uh, loose who founded the Naval War College and then a man who comes after are very much part of this of this thread. You know, the the foundation of the Naval Institute and the Naval War College are around developing a professional cadre of naval officers who can develop the skills associated with the profession and they begin to agitate for a more effective promotional scheme along with other individuals like uh, Henry Clay Taylor, who was a later uh, president of the Naval War College and also chief of the Bureau of Navigation, which in those days had responsibility for personnel assignments. It ultimately became the Bureau of, of, of Personnel in accordance with that responsibility. The challenge, of course, is that all of these officers have to work with civilians in the United States government. They have to get Congress to accept the fact that there needs to be a new mechanism for promotion and for recognizing greater talents. And the work involved in getting the necessary changes through Congress is very time-consuming and, and difficult. Um, Don Chisholm has written a very exhaustive history of this, which he called Waiting for Dead Men's Shoes, because... 
that's literally what some of these officers were doing, right? You've got to wait until the person ahead of you either retires from the service or, or passes away in order to be promoted. Uh, so there's a lot, of, a lot of difficulty and consternation, particularly for younger officers who felt that they were talented and that their abilities weren't being effectively recognized. So another, because you mentioned the Naval War College, and you you get into the creation of the General Board. So, and you also explain the difference between the two types of doctrines, sort of strategic doctrine and tactical doctrine. But let's just use doctrine in the most general sense. Doctrine was forged by a bunch of disparate organizations, including the Naval War College, and it, it kind of had a haphazard way with which it was made into an execution strategy. So the general board sort of forged that into what we now consider as, you know, directorates uh, at the Pentagon in each of the services. Um, so talk about a little more detail about the, the formation of a general board. Yes, the general board, I think, is, is fascinating. And I stand on the shoulders of uh, John Kuhn and others who have done a lot of good research with it. It's a particularly American solution to the idea of having a general staff and i think it was uniquely effective let me step back a minute and explain what i mean by that so a lot of naval officers wanted a general or a a general staff along the lines of what the prussians had used they saw it as a key to the success in the franco-prussian war of 1870 and 1871 however there was a great deal of resistance to this idea amongst the civilian leaders of the Navy and in Congress, because they felt that if there was a naval general staff or an army general staff, for that matter, then civilian the, the principle of civilian control enshrined in the Constitution would be undermined. And so they were very resistant to the idea. The What prompted the, the change and allowed the introduction of the general board was the Spanish-American War, John Davis Long, who was Secretary of the Navy at the time, did not have a great deal of familiarity with naval strategy or its its principles, but he learned well, and he recognized that he needed the advice of senior naval leaders to be able to conduct the war effectively. So he created an advisory board during that conflict, and it didn't have command authority, but it gave him sufficient information and acted as a staff for him and it distilled the important concepts and allowed him to command effectively and so after the war was over uh, Taylor and other officers continued to stress the need for an organization like this and along was sufficiently receptive to say okay we can do this I can create it. I don't need Congress necessarily to approve it, at least initially. But so that I don't raise their ire, I'm going to do it in such a way that it is an advisory board, much like we had during the war. It's not going to have command authority. And that way it won't undermine civilian authority. It'll make civilian authority more effective. And that's where the general board came from. So it's, it's not like a European model of a general staff. It, it's harmonious in terms of its integration with the United States command structure, and it turned out to be a very effective mechanism for harnessing ideas and advising senior leadership, both civilian and military, about the direction to take the Navy in. It it becomes an effective long-term 
planning arm. And another reason it was effective is because its uh, hearings were uh, confidential. They were kept secret. So if you were a relatively junior officer, you could come to the general board, you could give your testimony, explain the perspective that you had, and you didn't have any fear that your seniors were going to uh, take any reprisals against you for what you had said. So talking about the Spanish-American War, I don't think the general American population appreciates how that did affect military doctrine, specifically Navy doctrine, uh, going into the 20th century. Um, And I also uh, don't think that Naval Institute members appreciate that was sort of the the threat under which the threat of Spanish uh, a, a conflict with the Spanish Navy was was what created the Naval Institute. Um, you know, when when Admiral Warden uh, put it together in 1873, because the nation is post Civil War war weary, budgets are down, the public has no appetite. Not to mention the Hill has no appetite for recapitalizing uh, the force that was pretty much decimated during the Civil War. Um, but here are these military thinkers like Admiral Warden going, you know, I got it that we're war-weary because of the Civil War, but that doesn't mean threats to the homeland are over. And he specifically was thinking about the Spanish. So um, the book does a great job of talking about some specifics of the uh, of the learnings through that Spanish conflict. Can you highlight a few of those? Yeah, I think one of the most important learnings is, is having an effective mechanism for, for planning for, for war. Something that I highlight is, is the different mechanisms that were being employed to try to understand how, how to most effectively fight the Spanish. Right? So, and, and part of this has to do with institutional rivalries that existed at the time. There, the Office of Naval Intelligence was a relatively new organization. So was the Naval War College. Each of them had their own plans for how to fight. Uh, the Atlantic Squadron had its plan for how to, to be fighting Spanish. And these did not all align or agree. And they would have taken fleet in very different directions had they all been uh, implemented or entertained. So one of the reasons that Long felt it necessary, that Secretary Long, to have uh, an advisory board is he came into office and immediately recognized, hey, there's all these different war plans for a war with Spain. What happens if, if, if there's a war with Spain? We've got all these different directions that we want the fleet to go in. Uh, we've got to be more cohesive with this. We've got to have a better a better approach. So I think that you're right, that, that Spain is, is very important, not just the, the planning for it, but also the implications that, that come after. So lessons get learned in the run-up and then over the course of the war, but also now that uh, victory with Spain is won, you know, the, the United States has become a global power. We have responsibilities, more, more specific responsibilities in the Caribbean and in the Pacific with the Philippines, and the Navy shifts a little bit from thinking about Okay, how, how could we defend the, uh, the United States and also help enforce the Monroe Doctrine to how do we ensure that the global possessions are secure and well-maintained? And that, is a, that brings in a greater emphasis 
on how do we uh, send the fleet over significant distances? How can we project power? Uh, because the United States, unlike the Royal Navy, lacks at this time effective bases around the globe. So instead, there's a lot of investment in terms of how can the, the fleet be mobile? How can it bring bases with it, or at least the supplies for bases, so that if it moves to a position where there's a nice natural harbor, an advanced base can be established relatively quickly, it can be secure, it can be started, and then it can, see, it can serve as a base for mobile operations uh, in the future. You're probably also alluding to the fact that <clears throat> Spain illustrates how inexperienced naval officers are at coordinating large numbers of ships. Uh, and then, in, in that day, we're talking large numbers in terms of 10 or 20, not in terms of what we would think of in large numbers today. There had been very little ability to practice and to coordinate the movement of large numbers of na naval vessels because the ships of the Navy were distributed around two different squadrons uh, over the globe, whether that's in the Mediterranean or Asia or, or, or uh, the coast of the United States. So during the war, these ships come together, uh, but they don't fight cohesively. They don't fight as a unit. And that was something that had to change if the United States was going to be effective as a world-recognized global power. Yeah, and I'll remind our audience, uh, many, many people, uh, are of our, many of our listeners have served in these places before, but as a result of uh, the Spanish-American War, the U.S. acquired from, the Sp from Spain uh, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, Guam. Uh, shortly thereafter, Hawaii was annexed, so I was stationed in Hawaii for four years. Uh, uh, we then acquired the base at Guantanamo Bay at that same time, right, in 1903. Uh, we officially established a base there in, in Guantanamo Bay. So a lot of people uh, in our audience have served in all those places, right, in the Philippines or in Guam or in, you know, Hawaii. Uh, and so this is the time when the, suddenly the U.S. Navy becomes, as you just said, Trent, uh, you know, a global power. We have possessions. We have uh, bases, and we have to think about how we project that power, and that power has got to be projected by a navy, by a strong navy, a professional navy. Uh, let me jump forward a little bit because where where this book ends is after World War II, and and there's a great transition. It's uh, both subtle, but it also hits me between the eyes, uh, where you talk about you know how the navy became this learning organization and some of the key aspects of that. Um, you know, in, inculcating a learning uh, culture in the Navy uh, that, that, you know, served it so well during World War II. Um, so one of the things that was instituted both before World War I and then between in the interwar years was the fleet problems. And we know in the Pacific Fleet, because uh, he wrote about it in proceedings this year, Admiral Swift, the former PAC fleet commander, has brought back uh, the fleet problems, and those continue. Uh, and so talk a little bit about what the fleet problems were, the scope of them. And I was fascinated to read that these fleet problems, which are exercises, had an impact on officers' careers, right? So how well somebody did in an exercise had a direct impact whether they went on to lead at a higher level or whether their careers sort of went sideways or ended if they were shown to be not that great in tactics or the operational art. So really fascinating piece of this uh, book here is about the fleet problems. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I want to be a little careful is probably not the right word, but, but I, I want to try to be specific about those career impacts because one of the things that I think is important and it, it harkens back to something that you were saying when you were encouraging people to submit to proceedings, right? You're going to have a different bar when you're evaluating a submission from uh, a new writer, from someone who might not be very far along in their career or a more junior officer as compared to uh, someone who has a staff, who has more time or has the ability to be a ghostwriter, right? So, so the consequences for, let's, let's call them, you know, suboptimal performance become more severe as you move up the, the command chain, right? You should be more effective or, or less prone to mistakes uh, as you as you get farther up, uh, and so the examples that I highlight where that sort of thing happened are for people who are responsible for uh, fleets or a, a, a large number of, of ships. Right, not I, I not indi- not individual COs. Right, these are you know fleet level commanders and and exactly, force exactly. level commanders. One, right, because one of the one of the things that makes the fleet problems of the 20s and 30s work very well. And I know a lot of people have written about them. They've been highlighted a lot. I'm very grateful that uh, Admiral Swift was, was bringing them back. I think that's a good idea. But w- they're not just a, let, let's go out and, and, and have an exercise, right? They're, they're, they're called problems for a reason. They, they have specific problems that you're trying to investigate. The fleet as a whole is trying to figure out how to solve that problem. And usually they represented some aspect of an anticipated war in the Pacific against Japan. At lower levels, the commanders of you know, squadrons and divisions or the individual COs, they have an opportunity to exercise within that, within that framework. So they have an opportunity to, to issue orders, uh, to maneuver their ship or their group, and experiment with and explore with new approaches to handling their ships or uh, creating tactical constructs and seeing how they work. And so the variability within the fleet is extremely important. It's how the Navy identifies new ideas is by encouraging that sort of experimentation at lower levels and not being overly standardized with their approach to tactics and doctrine. So if we were... Uh, all a group of uh, destroyer commanders in the 30s, and we had an assignment to get together and figure out how to attack the the enemy battle fleet. We might you know, have a conference, talk about it beforehand, uh, share some ideas, brainstorm, and then come up with the details of our approach. And if it went well, if the empires agreed that that was effective and that we had been successful, you know, maybe we sank, uh, I'm using air quotes because you can't see them, uh, a couple of battleships as part of that exercise and got away with two out of the three of our destroyers, then maybe the techniques that we employed would find their way into a new doctrinal manual uh, that would be issued a year or two later. Right? So there's a lot of uh, emphasis on exploring new techniques, allowing relatively junior commanders to experiment with new ideas, and harnessing the best ones, the ones that seem to work most effectively. That gets me back to, to the food problems today. One of the things that concerns me, and I don't know enough about how they're actually run, but with all that's been said about the value of the food problems and how we should do food problems, I worry that sometimes the focus is on 
creating an exercise that we can call a fleet problem and not on bringing together the, the fleet in a rather open-ended exercise, presenting officers with real challenging problems and exercising them in the art of, of command to give them practice at thinking on their feet, experimenting with new tactical concepts, and uh, learning how to work together to make the fleet most effective. If, because after every fleet problem, there was a lengthy debrief. All the officers get together, or at least all the, the COs and above, and talk about what happened, what was their perspective, what went well, what didn't go so well, how should we do things differently next time, how can we improve? And it's that regular cycle of having the exercise, exploring new ideas, and then assessing what worked and what didn't work that made the three problems so effective. Now, part of that is you identify the people who might not be in the best seat for their talents and their capabilities. And uh, some of them did get moved off to do other things. And I think that that ultimately was for the Navy and the country's benefit. So we've talked about... Go ahead. I'm going to just jump on that because I know several people who are... Uh, key members of the staff out of Pack Fleet, or have been in the past uh, couple of years, and I, I do know personally that that they have resurrected the fleet problems. Admiral Swift resurrected the fleet problems with that exact spirit in mind. That these are problems we are posing a an operational level challenge that we want to explore. We want to explore it through a live exercise with Op Four that will play a re- very representative. Uh, peer level competitor. We want to see what happens, and we uh, we expect that failure will happen, and we want to have a very very detailed level uh, critique. and And I know that that has been uh, a very disciplined approach, um, because I know I've gotten feedback from that from from several people who played key roles in in developing that, reinstating the the fleet problems. We also heard a lot of that from from Admiral Swift himself. So I think that they have resurrected the not just the name of the fleet problems, but also the spirit of it. Um, you brought up, you used the word variability, and it's in the book. And, and this is where this key transition comes in, where you say at the beginning of World War II, there was great variability in the Navy in terms of the tactics and doctrine. And if you went from ship to ship and squadron to squadron, they weren't all thinking the same way. They weren't all using the same uh, checklists or NATOPS or uh, they, they had different ways of doing things. It was very variable. And there were goods and, you know, there were that presented some tremendous strengths to the Navy that it could try different things uh, up against the enemy. And some of them worked. Those that worked uh, were propagated and, and built upon. Those that didn't work obviously failed and people died. Um, and then there was sort of a transition as the as the nation geared up and went to war and mechanized and built massive numbers of ships and had to man those ships. Uh, in, in the book, it comes out really clearly that you had to go from this variability to a very checklist. Everybody does the same things. This is what we've learned. This is how you're going to do it. And you ha- that was a natural progression that had to happen as the Navy was built and as it, uh, you know, you took people that were running a drugstore on Main Street, and 90 days later, they're an ensign on a ship in the Pacific facing kamikazes off of, you know, Okinawa, or, or they're at Guadalcanal. So talk a little bit about that uh, that 
very significant but also sort of subtle change in the the culture of the navy from 1941-42 into the 44-45 time frame and then we'll talk about what that means for the navy of the last 70 years this this transition as you say it, it makes an awful lot of sense it I have to say it surprised me a little bit at first when I started to realize that that was, was what had happened and how it has informed our, our view. Because one of the things that I started with is the assumption that I can better understand what happened in World War II if I look at what the Navy was doing beforehand, right? Because that was where some of the most important leaders are understanding how to organize and command the force and, and how the, the doctrine is being developed. And it's very, uh, malleable is maybe the wrong word, but variability captures it, it, it quite well. There's a lot of room for experimentation and individual creativity. To make that successful, though, and, and the Navy understood this, to make that successful, you have to invest in a lot of training for these individuals, right? So the officers are going through the Naval Academy, and then after that, there's a lot of emphasis on the theories behind how the different aspects of the Navy and their ships work, right? So there's a lot of education about how engineering plants fit together. Uh, there's a lot of education about how uh, gunnery uh, works, you know, how to be good at it, how to aim and, and, and fire guns and, and hit things. Um, they didn't have modern computer-aided fire control systems. So all that knowledge and experience and skill comes together to make the, the naval officer. And they're, and they're very, very real and true professionals. That's not to say that the people that got taken off the drugstore and 90 days later were an ensign aren't professionals as well. Certainly they are, but the approach to education has to be very different. But in 90 days, you cannot create that kind of depth of experience. Instead, you have to prepare that individual and make them ready to command others uh, and to do the right things uh, when the time comes and to make effective decisions. And, and so the solution there, when you have to do it more quickly, is to become much more standardized, much more rote about procedures. You know, when this happens, do that. When this other thing happens, do, you know, do this other thing. Now, to their credit, over the course of the war, the Navy recognized that some of these individuals who did not have a naval background had other areas of expertise, and there was an effective use of how to bring those areas of expertise into the organization to help the Navy as a whole be effective. Well, again, what was fascinating for me about the book is things that we take for granted as part of the Navy profession now you know, like like the fact that the officer corps understands the engineering side of the house, and it's not specific. I'm back. Okay. Um, All right. The I'm I'm going to have to do some post production here for the you first are. time ever. I bet you. Um, I so, bet you are. Yeah. Thank uh, you for your your patience. I don't know what's going on with the towers and Arlington here. So we're, we're running out of out of time. So I just wanted to sort of. Uh, uh, summarize uh some of the because every page and bill and i were just marveling at how every page has got some factoid or some uh texture to it that's just amazing for career naval officers like like us 
Um, and what I was just saying is the, the things we take for granted, not just things like promotion boards, um, but, you know, we mentioned how you, the, that the insurgents codified uh, career paths, but not just for officers, also for, for the enlisted side of the house. And I, I found that chapter very fascinating in terms of seamen and landmen and how uh, this is sort of relates to what you were just talking about. How do you take a guy from a drugstore and then weeks later he's in the, on the front lines of the war in the Pacific? Um, the Navy had to adapt in a way that it wasn't, you know, some 30 years before wasn't postured to, to solve because you did have like merchantmen that, that were sort of earmarked to be uh, have a military uh, bent to their, their skill set. And, and we also had specific people who understood engineering plants but had no idea uh, what the Navy was for beyond that. You know, very segmented parts of a, of a crew and, and therefore training uh, suffered as well. Um, so I think I, I entreat the audience to check out those parts of the book because the, the detail you provide and the context is just fascinating, again, for things we take for granted. For instance, the first CNO was a captain. Um, you know, not not a four star. I know. Oh, by the way, the rank of three and four star did not exist uh, for some years after that. Um, you know, and, 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 and these and the sorts first, of things. First CNO came about in I think it was 1908. Yeah. Trent, Trent, correct me if I'm wrong there, but I think that was the data, which yeah. which surprised me yeah. when I read it. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's incredible. It's later than that. It's, later. That. it's um, it's it's 1915. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so Captain Benson, right? And and so. Right. It's sort of like a half-assed attempt to even give any sort of power to that billet. You know, uh, yeah. we weren't all all in, um, and it was sort of a scary idea that you would centralize decision-making power, and 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 not everybody was was cool with that. The other thing that I, as a guy who worked at a Syscom for a few years, where you talk about the Sims part of it, and I think Sims' relationship to Roosevelt, and and the sort of tragic serendipity of Roosevelt fleeting up to be president because of McKinley's assassination, that was actually a good thing for the Navy in terms of these sorts of developments and fast-tracking the insurgency in, in a way that benefited the Navy in a timely fashion. You know, people forget, and I sound kind of like Donald Trump, people didn't know that Lincoln was a Republican. They also didn't know that, um, <laughs> that, that Roosevelt was SECNAV before he was president, right? So he's sort of doing his vice president thing summarily he's fleeted up to be president and suddenly he has or people like sims have his ear and this training program that sims you know created comes about in a very quick fast track fashion and part of that was the the sort of forging of the military complex i won't say the military industrial complex but you know the bu webs had some decisions to make and they were being uh, pressured by the Fords and the GEs of the world to give them full soup to nuts control of the procurement process. And they were wise to create some oversight and some agility that kept any one contractor from owning too much of a weapon system and therefore, uh, you know, having undue influence on, on how that would, how our warfighting capability would come about. I, you know, we complain about how onerously complex procurement is now. But it was started with some level of, of sort of uh, genius about the agility that was baked into it. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the things that I think is fascinating about a century ago, how different procurement was and how much more rapid it could be, uh, how much more agile it was, to, to use a more modern term. And 
the, the fire control system, the development of the fire control system that I record, I think is an excellent example of that. You're right to highlight the importance of what was then called the Bureau of Ordnance retaining control for integrating and synthesizing the system. It didn't develop most of the pieces, but it, it uh, created a system that was, to use a more modern term, plug-and-play. Right? So you can take different modules out and, and based on what different manufacturers were creating and then integrate them into the system, and the system could overall improved in effectiveness. And that's one of the reasons radar was so rapidly integrated with fire control in the early 1940s. And that's got dramatic effects for the ability of, of U.S. Navy ships to be able to fire accurately at, at night and then later on in the day and in all weather conditions, hey, uh, outpacing. Yep. Trent, uh, that that is one of many great examples you have in the book, and, and Ward and I would be happy to talk with you for two or three more hours about this book, and, <laughs> and we look forward to going back and rereading some of the chapters that we skimmed last night, and uh, this is this is really just an incredible book, and I, I recommend it to everybody. Um, I would say one thing that I want you to know, and I don't think I'm speaking too far out of church here, is that last week uh, we had from one of our board members uh, on the weekend, we had sort of an emergency, hey, can we get a copy of Learning War? Because Admiral Richardson wants a copy of it because he's going on a trip and he wants to read this book during his uh, his plane flights. Right, so it, there was a little bit of a scramble of can we get one to the CNO so that he has it before he gets on his flight. So we know that this book is being read uh, at the highest levels of the Navy, and I think it's going to have tremendous influence. So the the other thing that that jumps out, and because this is a proceedings podcast, we we need to mention it, is how <laughs> fundamental proceedings was during this era in terms of thought leaders socializing their ideas. Um, you know, and so as as members of the the proceeding staff and people who work at the Naval Institute, that that is just a uh, amazing bit of history that, that you know we we want to get our mojo back, you know, yeah. in a way where what's the 21st century version of that? Obviously, there weren't there wasn't social media and the web, and there weren't concerns about classification that we have now. But it, it I was proud to see just how many and 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 you know every time I learn more about the history of the Naval Institute, I'm just blown away. But how the Simses and the Luces and the Mahans, not to mention the Roosevelts of the world, used proceedings as the first, uh, you know, uh, shot of their their discussion. Um, so it was the place to be published in order to get people, uh, you know, on board with your ideas. And and so that that's just a really cool. And and so um, I don't want to say thank you because you're just reporting facts. But but that's that that to me was a big part of the yeah, book as it, well. It comes out a number of places in the book. And uh, well, sadly, we are out of time. Uh, Trent Hone, thank you so much for joining us. The book, again, is called Learning War, the Evolution of Fighting Doctrine in the U.S. Navy, 1898 to 1945, published by the Naval Institute Press, 2018. Uh, And it's just one more example of how victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you next week.